We've come to the end of the season, therefore it's time for another clip show. Today we'll be enjoying stories of Mother's Day's past, from Blanche's mother remembering how much of a scamp she was, to Rose's mother being an imposter, to Dorothy being her own grandmother. We have a lot of stories to share, so let's get to the show and celebrate the end of season three with Mother's Day. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to share some information with you guys. Being the end of the season, Coco and I will be taking a hiatus from now until January of 2023. At almost the halfway point, though we hadn't planned on taking a break, we feel this is a good place to do so. Coco will be having major heart surgery at the start of September to replace a valve due to a birth defect, so we have to focus our energy on his healing. We aren't religious people, but if you'd like to send any good energy our way, it would be appreciated. Thank you all for listening and for being a friend, really, truly. So we'll be back for season four and the rest of the series in just a few months. And I know I'm bad at posting on socials, but I'll be sure to keep everyone abreast of his status and for the date of the season four premiere. Oh, Danny boy, <laughs> the pipes, the pipes are not, the pipes, are, are, not, the pipes are not calling to you. From Glen to Glen. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, nothing can defeat me except uh, death. <laughs> wow, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if that's motivational or scary or optimistic or nihilistic. That's just my mis- part of my mystique. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I don't. I don't really know what to say. This is a this is a great show. I can't wait to be back. I'm. So, I I wish we didn't have to take time off, but I'm kind of glad we get a little break. Coming in hot, season four. We're gonna yeah. get. I mean, you told me that that Quentin Tarantino episode is coming. I up. know. I can't wait. And I'm very excited about that. I will. I will survive just for that. <laughs> I have many more reasons. But we've got to get through this whole series. I feel that it is my crusade. <laughs> it's important to me. This yeah. show is super important to me. Me too. I love doing the show with you. Me too. And I love the idea that anyone, anyone out there connects to it and looks forward to it, like like visiting with a friend. Yeah. And I'm uh, I'm glad that, I don't know, it feels, we like gave ourselves this job, but it feels really good to be talking about this show. Yeah. It's just very, uh, it gives me a lot of strength and it gives me a lot of uh, mm-hmm of the positivity to to get through all of this stuff because yeah. it's heavy it's heavy it's very heavy and it's it's a lot for me and I'm it's just uh yeah well maybe we'll put together I'm scared yeah we'll put together a little playlist uh before you go into the hospital of 
you know, Dorothy running out of the hospital with her foot surgery. And there's one later in the series where Rose is in the hospital. So we can, you know, visit all of those. They'll give you inspiration. Oh, yeah. And like the mummy man. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's cool. That's what I'm hoping. I'm going to see if they'll, when I start feeling a little better when I'm in the hospital, I'm, I'll see if I can get the nurses to like mummy me. <laughs> so that when you come in, you're like, oh. Or be like, he's, he's actually just a head now. <laughs> That'd be fun. Okay. On with the show. It is the second Sunday in May, which is why all of the girls are dressed up. It's Mother's Day, a day that I've had the honor of sharing with my mother when my birthday falls on it every seven years or so. At the island is Rose in layers of white, her dress, her scarf, her jacket, all matching. Blanche is at the table in a bright blue dress, along with Dorothy in her green, white, and purple blouse. And she's delighted to greet her own mother with a happy Mother's Day when Sophia comes in wearing an adorable pink and floral print dress adorned with a boutonniere of little roses. Her greeting, like the buffet they're celebrating the day at, is cheap. So they better get a move on before everyone beats them to it and takes all the shrimp. They are all very excited to go to brunch, but Rose is waiting for Charlie Jr. to call. And Dorothy is waiting to hear from newlywed Michael, and Blanche hasn't heard from her daughter Janet. But she never does, so that one doesn't really count. Sophia is still waiting to hear from Phil, but that's understandable. He doesn't have money to be making those long-distance phone calls. Answering the ringing phone, Rose is confused when she hears that it's the Duke of Windsor, or Henry VIII, calling for Queen Elizabeth. Well, speak of the devil. It's Phil. See, children... Back in the land of long distance, collect calls and pay phones, you could call someone collect, meaning the recipient would have to accept the charges. And in order to do so, you had about two seconds of recording time to give your name, allowing the person to decide if it was worth the cost in talking to you. I definitely took advantage of this on occasion, calling home from a payphone and in the recording saying, Hi, Mom, it's me. I'm going to be going with Liz to her house after swing process. Bye. And so that way she kind of got the general idea. And then that way, I didn't have to pay for the call. My parents got the info they needed, and they too didn't have to pay for it, which is what Phil is doing here. By using the silly names, Sophia knows it's for her. So she quickly responds before it hangs up in an effort by the phone company to keep people from doing just that. Do you remember that commercial? I think it was 1-800-COLLECT or 1-800-CALL-ATT. Mm-hmm. And it was that, that exactly what you're talking about, where you get the message in within like the, the, the span of like your name and the collect call. Mm-hmm. And the guy is announcing that his wife just had a baby. Oh, I do remember that. So it sounded just like this. Uh, operator, I'd like to make a collect call, please. First name, Bob. Last name is... We had a baby, pizza boy. Hello? Collect call for Mr. Bob. We had a baby, pizza boy. Sorry, wrong number. Who's that, dear? Bob. They had a baby. It's a boy. (gasps) That's a Geico. That's how long Geico's been in our life. This reminds Dorothy of the time she and Stan had to go to his mother's house to ask for help with paying the bills. Scanning the walls of her home, we see what appears to be actual photos of Herb through his life, decorating every square inch of her eclectic trailer. Getting to the frame of the door, the pictures have come to life, and it's Stan waiting to be let inside. Coming in, Stanley is greeted with hugs and love. Dorothy is met with dismissal and disgust. 
playing Stan's mother is Alice Ghostly, who I'm always happy to see come on the screen. Her voice, her characters, all of it. She's maybe made you happy, appearing in Passions, Evening Shade, The Carol Burnett Show, Punky Brewster, Friends, Grease, Chips, The Nancy Walker Show, where she played along with Dorothy's aunt, Maud, Love American Style, Bewitched, Hogan's Heroes, The Graduate, To Kill a Mockingbird, and Good Times. Her Broadway career earned her a Tony Award, and in Designing Women, for which she earned an Emmy nomination, she played Bernice. It's a Christmas tree skirt. You're supposed to put it around the base of your Christmas tree. Oh. Oh, well, no wonder. I like to never got this thing on. I finally just let the waist out and tied it with a belt. The kids aren't just there to beg for money. It's Mother's Day, so they've brought her a gift. A coffee table book of Adolf Hitler's artwork. I guess to show just how nasty of a person she is which she lives up to, only thanking Stanley for the book. Stan even points out that the gift is also from Dorothy, but to thank her would cause her to choke. Dorothy is really hoping she gives that a whirl. Taking a seat on her green couch decorated with lace and Roseanne blankets, she checks in with her son and learns that Stan was the salesman of the month, but I thought he owned the company. Anyway, adding to the celebration, Dorothy mentions that one cannot think of fake vomit without thinking Zbornak. Trying to get a moment alone, Stan asks his mother for some tea. Running up to his wife, he begs Dorothy to be nicer, otherwise they might not get the money they so desperately need. For Dorothy, she sees this as a Stan problem. It's his mother, his money, his whole deal. That's not the case, however. Dorothy is the one that has to do the asking. If Stan were to do so, his mother would know he was failing, shattering her image of him being as charming as movie star Cary Grant, as good-looking as Oscar-winning Gary Cooper, and as business-savvy as John D. Rockefeller, founder of the Standard Oil Company and a man so rich he controlled 90% of America's oil at one point. Dorothy can understand why she would feel that way. She drinks ethanol or grain alcohol by the cup which has surely done some damage to her processing skills and or comprehension. Returning with tea for everyone, Mother takes a seat at the table. Well, there isn't tea for everyone. Dorothy was served a cup of hot water, which is then turned into tea when Mother puts her used bag into Dorothy's for about one second. Trying to escape, Stan concocts a story about needing to make a phone call for work. Plastic poop never rests. Left alone, Mother gets to the matter at hand. Are you guys here for money? Dorothy tries to fight it, but there's no use. Yeah, Stan's mother had a feeling the schmuck lost his job or something bad had happened. Dorothy is shocked to hear her speak anything other than praise about her baby boy. That's when she gets real. All of Stan's life, the world has been against him. She needs to be the one person that praises and celebrates him. Without Dorothy even asking directly, she promises the money with one caveat that Dorothy never tells Stan that she's the one that gave it to her. If he thinks his mother is a pushover, that little bit of work ethic that he has to prove himself to her would be gone. Instead of the $500 she needs, Dorothy is blessed with $1,000, pulled from the top of mother's stocking. She then goes on to give appreciation to Dorothy, saying she's tough on Stan, which is what he needs. This only leaves Dorothy confused. You're such a jerk to me. Why? easy. If Stan knew that the women actually got along, he'd want to be visiting his mother all the time. And no one wants that, especially his mother. 
Dorothy is more than understanding and happily hugs her mother-in-law. When Stan comes back, he's shocked to see them embracing, so his mom plays it off as though Dorothy was attacking her. Clearly, she didn't give them the money. Running out the door, they say their goodbyes, and Mother continues the facade of hating Dorothy. As soon as the kids are gone, she makes her way through the house, taking down all of the Stanley pictures, putting them in a box that she keeps around for when they stop by. Back to the kitchen, Dorothy was happy to share that she and her mother-in-law had a secret bond, but Sophia can't picture it. She hated that woman, even going so far as accusing her of eating mice. There's another phone call, and this time it's for Rose. It's Charlie Jr., She's excited to hear and share with the girls that it's cold in Minnesota. Curious if it's cold enough that his tongue would stick to a pole, he runs to check. For Sophia, this is an opening to leave and go get food. For Blanche, it's time to share her memory of the last Mother's Day she had with her mom. It was in Virginia, not all that long ago. Her mother had been sick, Alzheimer's I presume, and was in a facility. Standing to greet her mother when she arrives in the visitor's area, Blanche's mother tells her to stay put. She's giving a perfect example of how, on the arm of a handsome young man, a lady should make an entrance. Walking her in or possibly sitting in the back because his role is only written as rest home resident is Arthur Tovey, a prolific extra. He has nearly 500 credits to his name with his uncredited role with the girls being one of his last. In between The Mummy in 1932 and To the Ends of Time in 1996, he appeared almost always uncredited in pretty much every show you've ever heard of and dozens of films. With a huge smile, Blanche, in the same multi-layered gray dress from last week's Mr. Terrific, sits on the couch to join her mother, who is in a bright blue dress and accessorized with lace gloves, a lace shawl, and a cameo. Get it? She's old. That's always bothered me in movies and and TV shows. Someone was born way long ago, so maybe like even late 1800s or early 1900s. And then when they get old, they dress like old people then or their house is like suddenly full of oil lanterns and lace doilies. Doilies was I was going to say doilies. You old doily stealer. <laughs> Yeah, they have to look like that painting of Whistler's mother or something. Yes. It's like a bonnet knitting. It's like she's in her 80s, but it's the 80s. She can dress however she... She doesn't have to dress like when she was born in the 1900s. Night She was born in 1899. She doesn't have to dress that way. Where was that? Where was that taking place? Was that in the Vir- South? That was in Virginia. Oh, that was Virginia. Yeah. Which I'm not sure why they were in Virginia because she was always in Georgia, but, you know. Uh, that's maybe just her family her, her family moved on to growing tobacco oh, yeah, instead of go. cotton or whatever they <laughs> did. That's just always been a pet peeve of mine. Just because ah. you get old doesn't mean you time travel. Or does it? <gasps> well, I mean, when we're old, don't, you don't think we'll still be dressing like we do now and have always? I've, I mean, now that you say that, I've really been dressing the same like a long time. Yeah, but I think... Yeah, but when I get old, I'm not going to suddenly like put on a shawl, like bland. Like, well, I it, guess that's it, where we differ. <laughs> it would be like if Blanche, if we had a story of Blanche right now, and suddenly she's dressing like wh- what her mother was dressed like. Like Blanche didn't dress like that, but she, you know, she dressed nicely. That's tr- and she wouldn't. She wouldn't. 
Right away, it's clear Mrs. Hollingsworth is struggling with memory issues, forgetting Blanche called to say that she'd be coming by, forgetting it's Mother's Day, and forgetting that Blanche isn't her other daughter, Virginia. And before I forget, let's introduce Blanche's mother. Actress Helen Cleave actually got her start on the stage and the radio right here in Portland, Oregon. Her acting career had her appearing in I Love Lucy, Dragnet, The Gazebo, Dennis the Menace, Andy Griffith, Manchurian Candidate, Mr. Ed, Get Smart, The Munsters, Bewitched, The Virginian, Love Boat, Lou Grant, and she was best known for playing Mamie Baldwin in The Waltons. But she was also a commercial queen. Imagine, a recipe file with just one recipe. Serving one salad dressing every day is just as dull. As a gift for the holiday, Blanche gives her mother lace handkerchiefs. This was because of the wise words her mother gave her. A lady can never have too many handkerchiefs or boyfriends. There's a call for dinner, so all of the other families leave the room. Blanche's mother doesn't want to, so they continue to visit. Feeling nostalgic, Blanche asks if her mother recalls the time that she was in high school and ran away to marry the boy that she'd been dating for a whole month. Thinking she was in love with the 40-year-old, twice-divorced, unemployed father of three who was also clearly a groomer and possible pedophile given that she was still in school, she thought marriage was a great idea, especially since that meant she would be the stepmother to her biggest cheerleading rival and she could therefore remove her from the squad. The day after proposing, they ran into each other at the soda fountain inside the pharmacy. Doing his best James Dean, but with the added decoration of a Woody Woodpecker tattoo, he found Blanche and asked with a, so, if she had an answer about leaving town to go find his connection that would happily marry off a 17-year-old girl to an older man. Luckily enough, a family friend had been in the store and ratted Blanche out to her parents. They got to the Bubba's Chapel of Bliss and Tackle shop before the kids, well, kid and adult, and put a stop to it by simply saying that they were there to give their blessing and how happy they were for her. Given that Blanche suffers from oppositional defiance disorder, she of course couldn't follow through if it was making her family happy, so she gave him back his allergic-to-the-law bracelet and called the whole thing off. The three Hollingsworths got into the car and went home. Worried her mama was mad at her, Blanche checked in, only to have her mama say that it was the best Mother's Day she'd ever had. After hearing the story, her mama thought that it was Virginia who was the slut. Proudly, Blanche corrects her. She's the slut. After a pause, Mrs. Hollingsworth not only remembered the story, but she corrects her. This was Christmas, 1949, not Mother's Day. Blanche has that kind of effect on her mama. She might have days that she can't remember her own name, but Blanche's malarkey is probably part of what sent her to the home, so of course she remembers all her stunts, even if she is 85. When Blanche corrects her, saying, You're 89, her mama reminds her of her manners. You don't tell your real age. Oh, so that's where she gets it. Back at the house, Rose is finally wrapping up her call with Charlie, leaving us hanging as to if he stuck his tongue onto something or not, and it's finally time to go eat. Ah, but not so fast, Dorothy points out. She's still waiting to hear from Michael, the kid she very recently told was making a huge mistake with his life choices, so maybe she shouldn't be holding her breath? Sophia won't be holding hers either. She's withering away like the flowers on her chest, any moment, her blood sugar will just drop so low that she'll have another stroke. 
Now it's Rose's turn to share about the time she was headed to see her kids in St. Olaf when she got stuck in a bus station. That looks remarkably similar to the train station they were stranded at on Christmas. After a kind and idiotic exchange with the bus station attendant, played by Wesley Mann, who is making his first credited appearance as an actor with the girls, but through the years he's become one of the most recognizable, hey, that guy, faces, after acting in My Stepmother is an Alien, Who's Harry Crumb, Night Court, Back to the Future Part Two, The Wonder Years, La Story, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, Murphy Brown, Full House, Angus, Family Matters, Home Improvement, But I'm a Cheerleader, and Lucifer. The guy with the hat, where is he? Oh, he went that way. I think he took your wallet. I think he took his wallet. Rose has ended up somewhere betwixt Minneapolis and St. Olaf. So I'll take a guess that she's in St. Cloud, as that's about the halfway point, and the name seems fitting as everyone's minds seem to be in the clouds. Or maybe their heads are just full of them. There is a bus that departs from that stop for St. Olaf, but Rose will have to choose if she wants to ride the traditional bus or the yokel, where a group of cousins play their banjos at you as you on and off board. As tempting as that sounds, the inability to request a song has Rose choosing traditional. Making her way to the benches to wait out the hour until her departure, Rose is stopped by a woman in a yellow coat, gray scarf, and adorable hat that looks like one I have in my grandmother's collection. Learning Rose is headed to St. Olaf, the woman shares that she's actually been there. It was memorable for its natural beauty, lovely architecture, and the unbelievably stupid population. At first, Rose is warmed by the idea of her beloved hometown being recognized for its beauty by a stranger, then her brain processes what her ears just heard, and she's offended. But who could be mad at sweet Geraldine Fitzgerald? We'll see her next year on a Monday, but besides her two episodes with the girls, she had been on Broadway in the 1930s with Orson Welles and later appeared in Long Day's Journey into Marinera, I mean Night. She was Oscar-nominated for Wuthering Heights, was one of the first women to be nominated for a Best Director Tony, was nominated for an Emmy for her role in this episode as Anna, She's considered one of the best Irish actresses of all time, in addition to appearances in St. Elsewhere, Cagney and Lacey, Arthur, Lou Grant, Trapper John M.D., and Poltergeist 2. Do you want to be an artist when you grow up? Maybe. Don't want to grow up much. Probably not much fun. Oh, sure it is. I've loved every age I've been. They all have their blessings. Defending her sweet, dumb town, Rose takes offense to Anna's words. She apologizes and then clarifies. It wasn't that everyone in town was an idiot, but for a town that size, the ratio of dummy to not dummy was really high, which, in that context, Rose agrees with. Anna is also on a journey for Mother's Day. She's headed to Northern Falls to see her daughter, just like how Rose is headed to St. Olaf to see all of her kids, their gift to her. Anna's impressed to hear that Rose's St. Olafian children figured out that it would be cheaper to send one person, Rose, on a bus than to have all of the children, and probably their significant others and children of their own, fly to Miami. Fifty years ago, Anna's cousin was marrying a St. Olafian girl, Sonja Jaugenfrau Lichtensteinerbrau. So Anna and Rose have actually crossed paths before. Anna attended the wedding, and Rose was the flower girl. Rose's duties as the flower girl were hindered by the fact that Old Man Smith, the only florist, 
blacksmith, and black person in town had just moved to St. Olaf from Chattanooga, Tennessee, when he was greeted by the welcome committee that shockingly resembled the KKK. His very real fear of being lynched, because, let's face it, the whiteness of St. Olaf isn't going to be much better than that of Tennessee, sent Mr. Smith to the hospital for the summer as he recovered from a severe heart attack. So you have to wonder, what was Rose throwing on the aisle? From Mr. Smith to peanut brittle to movie tickets for a non-existent theater, Rose is fully twaddling with no end in sight. The grimace on Anna's face is the only thing that shuts her up. Inquiring if something was wrong, Anna shares that she's just bummed that she recently bought herself a hearing aid. This would have been a nice time to not have been able to hear. With a classic zoom in and out, we've seen a lot of time has passed and Rose is still chatting about who knows what. Either she missed her bus or this was one hell of a long hour. Delirious with Rose's infectious, blissful ignorance, Anna is enjoying herself, unsure if she's losing her hearing or perhaps her mind. With a somber pause, Anna thanks Rose for hanging out with her, for the now hours that have passed. We don't get an answer as to why the buses are so late, but early spring in Minnesota, perhaps they're stuck in some snow. To keep her children from being worried about the delay, Rose decides that she'll give them a call. Anna doesn't share those concerns. She still has until tomorrow to get to her daughter, and she's never missed a Mother's Day. When Rose pushes for Anna to call, just in case, Anna opens up. Her daughter died long ago. Mother's Day had been their special holiday, so she continues the tradition of going to visit her burial place every year. But this year might be different. Anna has had to move into a care home, and in order to get to her daughter, she had to run away. Enter lanky, accented sheriff Terrence Evans. Sure, he appeared in all of the hit shows of the 80s and even had a stint on Days of Our Lives, but let's talk movies, like Curse 2, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and my favorite role of his as Old Monty in the 2003 remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What the hell are you doing in my house? Look, we're just looking for a friend, all right? Then we'll be out of here. You ain't running things, boy, except in your mouth. This is crazy. Turd. You're so dead you don't even know it. Spotting Anna, he tells her that she needs to get back to the home. As the sheriff gives the orders, Jacob, the attendant, sees it as the perfect time to announce the boarding of Anna's bus, which is confusing to the officer especially when there are only three people in the room anyway. The officer doesn't have a photo, so he just assumed the older woman was Anna. He had only received the information via a telex, which was a network of teleprinters that, like telegraphs, printed messages. It was popular for a while, but then along came the old fax machine. Realizing this, Rose steps up, literally, and tells the officer that Anna is actually her mother. Not only that, but their bus is there. With a wink from Jacob, Rose assists Anna out the door. Let's hope she was just in a home that was really strict and she wasn't there because, like, she had dementia and medication issues and needed to be monitored and now Rose is actually doing more harm than good. Oh, maybe I should call my therapist. Back at the house, Sophia is still fed up with not being fed. So instead of being moved by Rose's story, she's moved to near violence. But too bad, with Dorothy still on the phone with Michael, it's Sophia's turn to tell a story of her own. Of course she has a story, and it will be better than anyone else's. Picture it, Brooklyn, 1957. 
Dorothy, being played once again by the fantastic Lenny Green, has left to pick up Sophia's mother. While she's out, Sophia is desperately trying to get her lousy Sal to sit up, put on a shirt that has sleeves but doesn't have linguine on it, and present himself in a slightly decent manner. As she turns off the radio, he remains sprawled on the couch. Hold on to your oh boys because oh boy. Sal can't believe Sophia would expect a present for Mother's Day because she isn't his mother. But as the mother of his children, she would expect something. His response? Cripes. He says, a thousand nights of begging. You say yes three times. And for this, you deserve a present? It's not enough they declared it a national holiday? Wow. And now we have another piece of the puzzle as to why Dorothy ended up with Stan. Sal isn't worried about impressing his mother-in-law. She already doesn't like him, and he's going to be stuck with her living there. Fun fact, it looks like Salvador is a bit of a psychic. Mother's Day that year was on May 12th, but the vote to allow the Dodgers to move from Brooklyn to L.A. didn't occur until May 28th. I can only assume that there had been rumblings about it for some time. Seeing as he's appearing to be a bit of a yutz, I don't feel bad for him that his team is moving out and his mother-in-law is moving in. Playing grandma in a wheelchair and with a horrible disposition and coming in from a new door at the apartment is a famous actress you may have heard of, Beatrice Arthur. I guess she was known for singing and acting and being an activist or something. I don't know. But for real, I think between finding Linny and using Dorothy as an aged version of her own grandmother was true casting genius. I cannot think of a better example of using actors to portray generations. And Coco, you were quite delighted. I was blown away by that. It was a great reveal for me. It gave me goosebumps all over my Truly, body. Truly, his whole arm was... I was... I loved it. And it it answered so many questions and it enriched who they were so much. And it said so much about their relationship. And I just loved that. Yeah. That is great writing. Yeah. Because, and it, I mean, it was a thrill. It was a it was an actual thrill on that show. I loved it. I loved it. I couldn't help but think of how fun it must have been for Estelle to not have to be dressed up as the old lady and to be her young, vibrant self. And then Dorothy not only getting to play that different role, but now she's the aged one. And so that probably gave her a new respect for Estelle, too. Like, oh, man, that's a pain in the butt to do all that makeup and to feel like you're the old, maybe not pretty one or whatever, you know, who knows what people were saying. Yeah, to have to build the, that into your character, yeah. all of those things that, like, the slight frailty and everything. And yeah, the, it's so, the, the age, they have yeah. a couple things. We've got one coming up in season four, um, another casting with people regarding Dorothy, and it is so good. Like, that, of all the things, I think that was probably their best job, or the best, th I think that was the thing that the show was best at, was casting. Obviously, there's hits and misses with Mr. Terrific, for example, but uh, for looks or vibe or whatever, they always were spot on. Leaning into her natural rasp, Grandma, in a black sweater and gray and black striped skirt, inquires as to Salvador's location. Dorothy, in a maroon dress and black belt, disagrees with her grandmother. Sal doesn't hate her. He's crazy about her. Or at least he's fond of her. Just a little bit. Grandma disagrees. He knows how to fix and work on things. Why can't he set a wheelchair break? Especially when she's sitting at the top of a flight of stairs in the subway. He hates her. 
This is when Sophia, in a gray dress, tells her mother that she and Sal would like her to move into their apartment with them, prompting Grandma's own version of, Picture it, Sicily, 1881. Sophia, feeling as annoyed as Dorothy gets with her stories, interrupts, which earns her a slap across the face from Grandma. That had to be so much fun for them. The violence is shocking to Dorothy, but they all move on and have a screaming match. Sophia claims, it's all decided. Grandma claims, uh, no, because you didn't ask me about it. Frustrated, Sophia tells Dorothy that if she's ever this much of a pain, she can take her out back and, you know, give her the old yeller treatment. Have her sleeping with the fishes. Put her out to pasture. Joking that she would like that written in a contract, it earns her a slap across the face while teaching us all about generational trauma and abuse. With a decent shirt finally on, Sal comes in hot. He has no problem with Grandma moving in, and in fact, he demands it. With a continued toxic conversation, it's decided. She can move in. With Dorothy finishing up her call, Michael would like to give his grandmother a happy Mother's Day wish as well. Saying hello, Sophia asks her newlywed grandson if he's eaten yet. To whatever he said, she responds with, Yeah, well, I haven't. Goodbye. And she's finally off to get her shrimp. But Rose stops them. Blanche still hasn't received her call. But it's nothing to be worried about. Janet probably won't call anyway. Before they can get out of the kitchen, the phone rings, and sure enough, it's Janet. Blanche's smile couldn't be bigger. And neither could Sophia's appetite. So instead of trying to get to brunch, she's just going to cook herself a meal. She doesn't care if it makes Dorothy feel bad. It's Mother's Day. What better way to celebrate than with guilt? Yet again, there isn't much of a very special lesson with this episode, except for the lesson of get your mother food before she makes you feel bad. That aside, it is still a sweet, loving episode. The ladies love their children and mothers. And like our predecessors that share the stories of their loved ones around a campfire, the women know it's important to share their love and memories of their own mothers to carry on their family history. And to show that whomever you consider your mother, you have your own special relationship and memories. So if you have your mother or mother-like figure around, give them a big hug and tell them you love them. Then get them some damn shrimp. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Stay tuned as we will be back in January with the season four premiere. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. And that was tied into the Adams family somehow. What was that about? Well, that song wasn't. He did a song for the Adams family. Uh, what was that called? Uh, they used the music. Oh, and, God. What was um, it? The Adams uh, family. Yeah. Kick and they slap a friend. Uh huh. It was like basically, the, oh, Adams family groove. Oh, God. Does it get more 90s than MC no. Hammer? doing a song for Adam's family. I love those Adam family I would movies. say only when- we should watch those with the kids. When Coolio did Dangerous Minds, uh, <laughs> whatever, the Gangster's Paradise, what is that? Yeah. Wow, that's really terrible. And now they gotta rip it out and give me a monkey heart or a pig heart or something. But then I think I'll be like just sexually voracious. <laughs> I agree. And we're gonna go swimming at the gym. In. You know, I and also I saw this movie 
uh, that that told me heaven is for real. <laughs> <laughs> Little and Greg Kinnear was there. Oh yeah, beach mm, people. Counties. I'm doing a check real quick. Sorry, oh, check, beach check, check, check. Beach people. Beach people. God, you sound great. Oh, thank you. Uh. <laughs> I'm putting that in the bloopers for sure. She's a bitch. <laughs> cow goes moo. That was cow. Dale. There's a Dale here. Whatever a Dale the hell is like a, a Dale I think is. it's like a Glen. Oh. Well, what the hell's a Glen? To Glen. What's a Glen? Oh, Danny boy. Excuse me. What's I think a Glen? It's, like a, it's like a field. Mm. A, a lush Irish field. So we're like fish field. My name is Irish <laughs> fish field. <laughs> oh, a narrow valley is what a Glen is. No, I was wrong. Well, it is like a field, but folded up like a taco. And that's why they should have called it Taco Valley. <laughs> that's why I'm so smart and charming. <laughs> My heart. <laughs> oh, Danny boy. <laughs> the pipes. The pipes are broken. <laughs> Please fix my heart. <laughs> Don't send me to Taco Valley. <laughs> You're right. Otherwise, the meat's going to fall out. <laughs> and the I'm the meat. The trouts. The trout fall out of my taco salad. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> Easy for you to say. I'm, I'll bet here now. <laughs> oh boy, I'm I I'm sorry. Mommy says. Well, I'm not sorry. Now. I'm very high. <laughs> Crazy. Um, can I go poop? Yeah. Oh, you... Nurse Tan, call maintenance. I have sperm all over my desk again. <laughs> He's a doctor. <laughs> we might have to watch oh, it. Oh my God, Poland. Address my fear. I'm sorry that you're scared. What are you scared of? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Little scamp. But anything else where you weren't traumatized? As a child? Um, Did you? I, where I, When I wasn't traumatized? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, there wasn't one of those. I can't think anything of a time. Anything I did that I wasn't traumatized? No. <clears throat> sorry, I almost like air burfed. <laughs> Burfed. <laughs> a burp and a barf, yeah. You and me put on these like little flower girl costumes and we, we walk down the aisle on our knees with like the veils on and everything. You want us to dwarf flower girl? Well, we're not dwarfing. We're just pretending that we're small. People, we're children. I'm That's not pretending what... I'm a little person. Oh, well. That's very different. No, we're pretending we're children and we should even have like little like stick arms coming out of our dresses to flow the, throw the flowers. And you know that's a good idea. You can't finish an idea screaming. You know that's a good idea. Uh, I'd like to take that. Can I take that again? <laughs> it feels like I don't have a lot of options here. I mean, I like the I like the concept, but the execution is how about impossible. like uh, animatronic ET? I mean, we have children in our lives. We could give them dress them up like ET, man. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Phone home. Your home is at the end of this this aisle. My my trout's falling out of my taco salad. 
<laughs> it sure is. Her trout's fallen out of her taco salad, if you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it, it couldn't sound more like that, but that's not what we were, that's not what we were saying. <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.